1: What is it? Five o'clock in the city of London. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London. Alex Steele is over in New York. Um, Let's talk about markets first of all, because to be honest, it's going to be a fairly brief conversation today. Alex, I have no clue as to why equity markets are down in the States, but you're way smarter than me. So you're going to be able to tell me what is happening. No,
0: whatever Guy says, whatever Guy says makes the most sense. Uh, I think in this time, honestly, if we just look at the last couple of days, digesting positions into next I'm going to float a couple ideas. Digesting positions into next week when we have lots of central banks. Um, continued follow-through selling from the S&P breaking below its 200-day moving average. But no one seems to be too fussed about it because you're not really having a similar reaction to the bond market or the dollar.
1: I, I think – so here's my theory yes it's going to be I actually right. don't I actually <laughs> of course um I actually don't think it's technical I think I think that everybody's just made a bit of money I think people are lightening up on positions I we've heard a lot about tax harvesting I think people are, are just taking profit into the end of the year I, where are we now it is yeah. December the 6th I know Christmas is still a way away but I think the end of the people are closing their books right now and I think people are just basically shutting up shop
0: so in theory that's kind of what I said like a week and a half ago
1: all right, you're cleverer than me.
0: <laughs> We've been Al- can I just at say Alex like is siblings.
1: super competitive today. Not me. If, if I if I if I talk for an inch too long, she's she's on my back. That's I true. have to say, like at the end of our TV show, she wouldn't stop talking. Uh-huh. Like I couldn't get a word in edgeways, yeah. So I'm just going to put that out uh-huh. there today that she, she's. I honestly, throughout the rest of the show, she's going to be giving me grief. Totally. So, it's we'll where just, the
0: fun part is. I, I'm well, an only child, but I'm assuming that if I had an older brother. This is what it would be like.
1: Yeah. Okay. Anyway. I have nothing smart to say about the markets. Um, but Charlie gonna, will. Charlie has we're, things to we're say. Gonna, we're going to talk to some people that will have smart things to say about the markets. Uh, Charlie Pellis is here to update us on all the headlines we need to know.
2: Hi, thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. Donations to the UK Conservatives sank to the lowest in more than two years in the third quarter when the ruling party was uh, riven by infighting, which led to the ouster of former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Now, according to Electoral Commission data, Rishi Sunak's party got almost three. Million pounds in donations in the three months through September. That is a 45% drop on the previous quarter. Poland's prime minister is defending the controversial decision to pay high bonuses to the national football team for its World Cup performance amid high inflation and hardship in the country. The prime minister said he believes that the players have earned some kind of a bonus by advancing from their group Poland's best result at the tournament in 36 years. Sources say Russia is considering setting a price floor for its international oil sales as a response to a cap that the G7 nations set out last week. And the U.K. says mental health has deteriorated sharply since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, with those out of work due to long-term sickness most affected. The Office for National Statistics said depression is hitting about one in six people, or 16 percent of the population, up from 10 percent before the virus struck in early 2020. That is the latest from the news desk. Uh, Guy Johnson, back to you now in London.
1: Thank you very much indeed. Um, Brent crude slumping below 80. Again, just part of this kind of risk off sentiment that we seem to be seeing uh, in global markets today. Um, we're going to be talking more about this a little bit later on. But right now, I want to talk specifically about what's happening in the UK. We are building up to Christmas. There are going to be a series of strikes As we build up to Christmas, we have had rail strikes for a while, but we are now going to see a whole series of other strikes. Uh, The NHS could be another epicentre of this striking action uh, with nurses, junior doctors, etc. going on strike as well. Um, But I want to talk a little bit about kind of what the specifics are around what is going on with the rail strikes. I think a lot of people are going to be affected by this. Uh, we're also going to see potentially engineering work being disrupted during the Christmas period as well uh, by some of these acts. Uh, the industrial action basically deepening yesterday. Uh, the RMT announcing a whole series of new strikes that are going to be taking place over Christmas. They are, the RMT is urging uh, members to reject industry payoffs. Now, we've got a series of kind of... Focuses here. You've got the kind of the train company strikes, but you've also got the network rail strikes uh, as well. This is the infrastructure operator here in the UK. Uh, The TSSA, the other union that is involved here, may be taking a slightly different course on the latter part uh, of this story. Uh, But let's get a kind of read on what is happening here. Eamon Farhat joining us now. He is, and this is the best title I think I've heard at Bloomberg in quite a while. He is a strikes reporter.
3: Well, I love that recently, I was yeah. about
1: to say, your, your world must have expanded really quite significantly <laughs> recently. Months, um, look, t- look, talk me through what's, uh, what, what the latest kind of story is, particularly on the rail strikes. I'm, I'm really curious about what we are now arguing about. There is a payoff on the table. But mm-hmm. what seems to be really upsetting the rail unions in particular is not necessarily the money. It's it's the condition story, it's whether or not we have guards on trains, it's whether yeah. or not we're going to see ticket offices staying open. It's those kinds of issues that now seem to be front and centre. Are those going to be more difficult to navigate?
3: Well, yeah, so the rail delivery group who negotiated on behalf of the trail operating companies, they made that offer on Sunday night. And as you said, it's not just about pay. I mean, they gave this pay rise of about 8% over two years, 4% this year, 4% next year. But It's also the fact that they wanted to close all ticket offices. They put forward kind of a mass um, job severance programme that would come in place maybe in two years' time, which is a long way way away but still the unions that are not happy with this um, they also as you said want to reduce the number of staff kind of in the stations on trains have more what's called driver only operated trains where you have basically just a driver not really anyone else yep. on the train um, and also you know more flexible working for the contracts and have renegotiated sick pay and all this kind of stuff and as you said you know the RMT who who re- represent a lot of rail workers over 40,000 who are going on strike in December uh, they rejected the network rail and the the rail delivery groups some um, offer some other unions have actually put to their members a vote for these offers because, you know, they say that it's the best that can be negotiated with the current circumstances, with all the pressures uh, on public finances. But as you said, it's not just about pay. It's also really about the working conditions.
0: Um, Does the government, can the government intervene at any point? So we just had something very similar here in the U.S. with Mm -hmm. rail strikes, Um, but this is like more freight trains, etc. And the government had to step in and say, like, this is the deal. You got to take it. They're not done. They're still going to be negotiating later. But they basically had to do that. Is the same thing apply in the U.K.?
3: well in the uk when you when you talk to the unions for a long time they said they weren't having almost any contact with the with the, the government so at the time over the summer when we had mass strikes it was grant shapps who was the the transport minister this was um before this trust then you had um and mary trevelyan after that and these two transport ministers really didn't have much much contact with the unions now mark harper's been in the job for about a month and a half he's had lots of meetings with the different stakeholders and although he can't really you know he doesn 't want to I think push anything through. He wants to encourage negotiation. He definitely I think because of what he because of the meetings he had in the last couple of weeks, we are seeing these offers. you know We hadn't seen an offer for about you know a month or even more um, from the rail delivery group and from the different parties. But once Mark Harper started having meetings and started talking to the people, then these, these offers came through. so I think they can help, but they can 't really force anything through.
1: Christmas and New Year are usually times when network rail do a lot of work. Mm-hmm. I, I get the train every day. Yeah. I experience this they shut the railways down for for a big portion of time in order to do some sort of fairly major engineering work. If that doesn't happen,
3: this Christmas what could be the knock-on effect of that well as you said yeah you know this is a key time when you have the Christmas slowdown it's a time to kind of get the engineers out there and do all these major works and there are many areas of the UK where I mean up north kind of in Scotland and even around London where lots of work needs to be done and this was a key time so definitely the RMT has positioned these strikes to the announced as you said uh, yesterday from the 24th to 27th of December they're positioned to try and disrupt these engineering works and this could have definitely a knock-on effect of more strikes or sorry more um, rail cancellations into next year and you have to also remember that although we're talking about December um, January third, fourth, and you know, into January we have more strikes planned and also these unions are reballoting for another mm-hmm. six month mandate to have even more action. So it won't just be a Christmas day, I think New Year and next year will be very serious as well.
0: Um Emin, thanks a lot. Emma uh, Farhat, thank you very, very much. Guy, are you still you're fine, right? Like you can still travel your trains fine?
1: Or no, our are trains are not fine. I they, they get shut down.
0: But, but you can so You have you to drive
1: quite a long way
0: okay.
1: towards central London to pick up a train that I can then take into central London. Or you have to drive it. I, it, it, so But most people now work from home on these days, which is a big kind of shift from pre pandemic. This is Bloomberg.
4: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg
1: Radio. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. So IATA, the airline industry body, out with its projections for 2023 a little bit earlier on. uh, It is now projecting that globally airlines will return to profitability in 2023. However, there's some big nuances here. Essentially, what they are saying is US airlines are going to be really quite profitable And that's going to carry the rest of the world. And what it basically means is that airlines in Europe, airlines in particularly in Asia, are really going to continue to struggle. That's basically the subtext of what is of what is being said here by IATA. Earlier, Alex and I caught up with the main man at IATA, the former IAG CEO, Willie Walsh, to get his take on this this very question.
5: We're forecasting a very small uh, net profit, uh, just under 5 billion U.S. dollars. But when you look at it regionally, uh, it's a strong performance in North America with uh, 11.4 billion Europe and the Middle East, back in profit, very small profit. uh, But the the main area lagging behind is the Asia-Pacific region, still forecast to lose uh, over 6 billion, 6.6 billion. Uh, So it's a sort of continuing story of what we've seen in 2022. uh, But it is an improving situation and clearly the trajectory is, uh, is, is the right way.
1: Why do you think it's improving given the fact that a lot of economic forecasts point to a recession in 2023?
5: Yeah, we're still forecasting global GDP in positive territory. Now, it's uh, clearly a significant slowdown from where we were, but our latest forecast has uh, GDP at 1.3%. Now, you know, to be fair, um, it's a snapshot as to where we see things today. That could obviously change. I I listened to some of your earlier comments about technical recession, uh, the general view that if we do see recession in some major economies, it's likely to be uh, a short and soft one. Uh, so we're we're still forecasting some growth at a global level. Uh, regionally, though, it uh, clearly will make a big def- difference. The North American carriers have benefited from a very strong performance in their domestic markets, which have largely been unaffected by the uh, Covid re- travel restrictions that we've seen in other parts of the world.
1: Willie, 2022 was dominated by a big return of demand, but an industry that was unable to cope. Supply and demand, are we going to see that back in balance next year? Are we going to see the problems that the industry has experienced in 2022 continuing in 2023?
5: No, we're not. Um, and I, I think we've got to be clear. You know, we did see major problems at some airports uh, in the case of Heathrow and Amsterdam, all those problems have continued way beyond when they should have been resolved. Most airlines are functioning functioning pretty well at the moment. And a lot of airports uh, around the world are doing OK. In fact, some countries didn't witness any problems. Spain is a good example of that. I, I think the recovery, certainly in the early stages, was uh, much faster than most people had expected but I don't think there's any excuse for um, airports that have not got their act together and we don't believe that we'll see a repeat of this as we go into 2023.
0: Uh, Willie how do you look at the pricing hi it's Alex uh, in New York how do you look at uh, the cost inputs I'm thinking about pilots we saw uh, yesterday a U.S. airline decide they are going to increase pilot pay by 34 percent over four years how is that going to bite into airliners profitability?
5: Well, I think that's a specific challenge for the uh, U.S. We're not seeing similar moves in other parts of the world. I think there is clearly a pilot shortage in uh, the U.S., uh, specifically as a result of the uh, requirements for commercial pilots uh, mm-hmm. that is uh, specific to the U.S. So there isn't a shortage in other parts of the world. In fact, most airlines are reporting uh, quite a good response to their recruitment plans. Um, if you look at the U.S. domestic market it's a significant part of their overall market.
0: That was Willie Walsh of IATA. And that just goes to my whole thesis that next year is really going to hinge on the consumer. What do we do in a recession? Do we keep spending it? We keep going on vacation within North America and self-help uh, airline profitability? Or do we just save it and brace for tougher times ahead? I feel like that's crucial to anyone in the market right now. Speaking of the market, we're seeing a decline continue in the equity market, SP down by 1.1%. We're going to get more on it. We don't know what's going on, but maybe Simon White will we'll talk markets next. This is Bloomberg.
5: This
4: is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London, alongside Alex Steele over in New York. Alex and I have no idea, honestly no idea, why equity markets are down the street. Pure speculation at this point. I, plenty of speculation, but we like a bit of speculation. Um, Macro-strategist here at Bloomberg, Simon White, joins us now to give us his take on this. Can you help us?
4: I'd like to say yes. Uh, unfortunately, it seems a classic kind of risk-off. I mean, when liquidity is low and we're coming towards the end of the year, it's positioning, it's liquidity. But
0: does it though? Because I'm looking at the dollar in the bond market, and they're not really behaving like it's a real risk-off move.
4: Yeah, well, I guess we'll look at. I'm looking at oil. I'm looking at equities. You know that they're kind of behaving in that way. But yeah, I mean, look, in a more micro sense, uh, you're getting very mixed messages, and I think this is the thing. It's, it becomes very difficult to try and attach narratives to sometimes, which is just overall kind of a, a bit noisy. Um, you know, coming into the end of the year, people are trying to, to de-risk as well. Um, and it's a lot still on the plate, right, in terms of um, underlying crises that are going on. Uh, you know, Ukraine, all the rest of it, they're still there, right? They're not going away, and people are still trying to have to price that stuff in. And
1: I also, I, the big event for me coming up is still that, that 24-hour period where you get CPI, and then you get the Fed. 48-hour period, depending on when you start the clock. Um, and I can't call that. I, the, the calling inflation's been really tricky recently, and calling the Fed twenty four hours after the CPI, I'm just, I am just, who knows? The Fed comes out and sounds hawkish next week, and, and the market still seems to have this idea that that actually the Fed can cut next year. That is, that has the potential for some for some real turbulence around it.
4: Yeah, I think I think I mean that's the Fed. The Fed's in a bit of a difficult spot, right? They're they're, they're not really being listened to. Higher for longer, the market's going. Yeah, okay, higher. So we're bringing the yep. peak rate higher, bringing it actually sooner. But then it's saying, okay, if we give you higher, then you're not getting longer. And yeah, it's pricing that's a exactly deeper pivot. Yeah, exactly. And, and that, that's what's happening right now. The Fed I think, is a little bit concerned so about another Wall Street Journal article. Yeah. Uh, you know them trying to guide the market using journalists, uh, and that's still obviously not done the trick. Um, so it's hard for me to see. Like the the, the market really is looking at inflation. It's looking at actually the the change of inflation. So it's almost like a second derivative. But as long as inflation keeps, the, the downturn keeps increasing, if you like, the pace of the downturn goes up, that's where that pivot is coming in. So if you get inflation not keeping up that pace, so it doesn't even have to surprise the upside, but the pace has to decline. Yep. That would be a bit of an upset. Uh, the market's not really expecting that. That That's where I see all the, the downside risk. And for the Fed, I'm not really sure what they can do, right? I mean, I mean, they've, they've tried all the talk. Yep. But at this end of the day, they're... they're they're trying to do one thing with one hand. They're saying we're going to ease back the pace of rate hikes. But they're still saying we're super hawkish. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that dissonance, I don't think the market is picking up. It's not able yep. to, 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 to compute. Or well, it's just not listening. Yeah. But
0: why? Like, Why it's, is that so hard to invest or trade against?
4: Very. I've asked a few people. No, nobody seems to know. Uh, nobody <laughs> has a good answer. Because uh, it, it, it's, I don't know, it seems to be like, and if you look historically, this is what happens, right? So th- this, this Fed pivot correlates very nicely with the, the yield curve inversion. So if you get like uh, cuts priced in, it's the same thing as twos, tens, really inverting and more and more inverting. And, and if you look historically, the, the greater the degree of the inversion before a recession, the more the Fed ends up cutting. And so even if yeah. uh, the Fed is saying one thing, we're not going to cut, we're not going to cut, and the market's going, don't believe you, don't believe you, and the curve keeps on inverting, it's, the market always tends to be right. So it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy that the market goes, you're wrong. It uh, bids up 10 years. The, the curve keeps inverting. And ultimately, it's the the, fre- the Fed capitulates. And then the curve begins to re-steepen. And, that, and it, that's playing out today. And you know, if you look at today, purely on historical significance, as in the historical record, you're looking at 300 to 500 basis points of cuts based on where the yield curve is. I'm not saying that's necessarily going to happen, but historically, it's significant with that See, kind of really th-
1: the The yield curve thing is really confusing me now. Because... Yes, we have a super inverted yield curve. But I looked at the services ISM data out of the States, 56. These are not not scary numbers. In fact, that number went up again. And that number basically signals that the consumer is keeping going. And the consumer is 75% of the U.S. economy. And at the moment, there doesn't seem to be any evidence that the consumer is is turning tail. And, and Alex is asking the question about kind of what does the consumer do with, with the dollars that they still have in their pocket? Do they save them or do they spend them? But at the moment, wages are lifting enough. The consumers keeps going. The consumer feels confidence because the jobs market hasn't rolled over yet. I, the US economy looks in, in actually surprisingly OK shape still.
4: I think, look, the consumer to some extent does. But there's so many other parts of the market that really doesn't. Like Credit conditions are tightening. Yep, sure. The housing market we know is, is basically plummeting. We had, what was it, um, Starwood today doing yep. stopping redemptions. We had uh, Blackstone earlier in the week. I mean, there's serious uh, stress here. And if you look at some of the more um, broader measures, like the Philadelphia Fed state indicator, so it looks at coincident indices across the whole of the US states, that's at recessionary levels. And there's several mm-hmm. indicators that are at levels that they've never been, and there's not been a recession in the next three to six months. So, I'd say the weight of evidence is actually going towards. But the difference, sorry to jump in, but the difference
1: this time seems to be that we come out of a pandemic in which the consumer built up huge amounts of reserves and is therefore going to spend those during the period that we would normally be rolling over. And I hate to say this time is different, but is there a danger? The extraordinary events of the last few years are upending some of those normal correlations?
4: Yeah, I mean, look, I think think if, if say, there isn't a recession, it will be. One of the worst prediction records, if you like, because there's so many people now believing there will be one. Yep. So re- really, that's where the big upset is. But even when it comes to the savings, I mean, the excess savings I was looking at this recently, that they're, they're being run down fast and yeah, they're they being run down right. unequally. It's the people, sure. obviously, that had the fewer savings are seeing the fastest rundowns. And they're the ones at the sharp end, if you like. And they're the ones that obviously have more of their disposable income that they spent and therefore it will have a bigger impact and quicker on the economy.
0: But, 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 that's where we're also seeing the biggest wage gains are in those types of jobs too. So it it, it does feel a bit of a chicken and an egg. But to Guy's point, I'm convinced that this is all going to boil down to how people spend money. Whether we have a recession in the first half, whether we have a recession that gets pushed out, or whether we not have one at all. And therein lies sort of the the investment risk, it feels, uh, for next year. I don't even know how I'm going to spend, Guy. I have no idea. Yes, you do. Yeah, I know. I'm still going to spend. At some point, I'm going to have to there stop, right? Will I? You think so. You no think evidence so. so far. Yeah, that's true. All right, Simon, thanks a lot. Simon White. This is Bloomberg.
1: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson
4: and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London just past 5.30 uh, where you guys are in the UK. We're just about halfway done with our trading day here in the U.S. It's ugly. Could get uglier. Uh, you get a tax, uh, talk, a tech sell-off driving stocks lower. If you if you say that really fast, it gets super hard. Um, Word, well, didn't you? Uh, yeah. Stocks. talks, Tech stocks. Tech, tech, tech stocks and
1: our, our talks
0: yeah. Uh, Anywho, tech is really leading the way lower. Uh, Meta getting hit a bit hard. Um, The EU is looking at its ad models, so that's sort of a danger zone for Meta. Um, But like I mentioned earlier, you're seeing the dollar and the bond market not really having that huge safe haven bid. Oil, though, continuing to roll over. We'll talk about that later on in the show uh, as well with Bobby Tudor, a famed investment banker uh, for the oil market. Now let's get some quick updates and some other stories making all the headlines. Charlie? I thank you very here.
2: much, and here's what's going on. The downturn in Britain's housing market hit construction activity harder than expected in November, with orders drying up and mounting concerns about the outlook for the economy. S&P Global said purchasing managers in the construction industry were the most pessimistic since the start of the pandemic in May of 2020. Sources tell Bloomberg the UK is finalizing plans for regulation of the crypto sector, moving ahead with plans to make Britain a hub for the industry as it grapples with the fallout from the collapse of FTX turmoil at the top of big UK companies with Vodafone, Unilever, Wreckit it and others simultaneously hunting for a new CEO. And that is prompting fears that Britain's largest companies may be vulnerable to activist investors and opportunistic takeovers. Airbus says it no longer expects to meet its full-year aircraft delivery guidance of 700 planes after supply glitches throughout the year impeded its ability to ramp up production. And it is a sad day for airplane enthusiasts around the world. Boeing plans to roll out the final 747 jumbo jet late today from its factory in Everett, Washington ending production of the aircraft after more than 50 years. Should point out, British Airways was a major customer for many years for the 747. Uh, the last one coming off the assembly line is a freighter. Boeing says the last of the model will be delivered to customer Atlas Air. That is the latest from the news desk. I'm in mourning. Back to you now here in New <laughs> That's York.
0: True. All right, Charlie, thank you so very much. So, as Guy and I were putting the show together with our team today, we're like, man, thank God for Shnalli Uh She is at the Goldman Sachs U.S. Financial Services Conference. Uh, it kicked off today. It's a two-day conference. And she had a ton of exclusive guests, um, really important names on the street, from David Solomon of Goldman Sachs, Brian Moynihan at Bank of America, to Discover CEO uh, Roger Hochschild, Hawks, uh, Um, huge names, all talking about the economy, recession, markets, hiring. So let's get a little taste of the names that she brought us and what they're saying about the economy.
6: We're at a very uncertain time, an uncertain time given we're changing monetary and economic conditions very, very quickly. And that's certainly having an impact to slowing down economic activity. And so if you're running a big financial services firm, I think you have to assume that we have some bumpy times ahead. We could see a recession in 2023 also. And so I think
5: you've got to be cautious and prepare. The U.S. consumer is still holding up really well. We still see payment rates on credit cards that are higher than they were prior to the pandemic. So while there's a lot of noise about the economy, we really feel good about what we're seeing. The
1: evidence shows that, yes, the economy is being slowed by the higher interest rates by the fact that uh, the the inflation is eating up more uh, of a person's savings. They need to get that under control. That means higher interest rates. But on the other hand, you're seeing them slow down, which ought to put less price pressure. That means they could slow down. So that's going to be the debate. I think we need a few more months to see whether it's just a trend or not.
6: The talent war is, is, um, I think there's some headwinds, given we're changing economic conditions. But the competition for talent is still very, very strong. Now, how that evolves in 2023 is unknown. Certainly, if we have a slower economic environment, it will have an effect.
2: We're still hiring new
1: relationship managers in business banking, commercial banking, new financial advisors, private bankers, people in the branches. We're investing, we invest 600 million more in marketing this year than we did
6: back then because the opportunity is still there. I think we will go into a recession next year in the US and Europe clearly already is in one. I think there's, we're gonna have to focus on that. Um, we aren't immune to that. We're pro-cyclical. We're an asset management business. Uh, But we also know that the value of our firm are the people who work in it. So we're going to do whatever we have to do to protect them.
0: Uh, Shanali joins us now on the ground at uh, Goldman Sachs U.S. Financial Services Conference. Shanali, first of all, good job. Those things are really, really difficult. You're going nonstop. It's tons of noise, tons of uh, people coming and talking to you. What's been your biggest takeaway so far as you've walked through a lot of these interviews today?
7: It's caution, caution, and more caution, guys. I mean, we knew that bonuses were going to be down this year. The interesting thing about what David Solomon had said earlier today was that, you know, in my conversations on background on Wall Street, a lot of executives are telling me they want to kind of hear David say something like that. Because if Goldman sets the bar such that bonuses are lower or that jobs are not as plentiful, then it makes it easier for everybody else because it gives them the wiggle room they need to also reduce bonuses and uh, and hire more slowly or even cut more jobs. And Shall even think not- of America, they're also not going to be hiring as much as they were before. So you do see the picture starting to really change. Slowly,
1: what happened? Like A few weeks ago, maybe it just feels like a few weeks ago, a few months ago, it was all about the war for talent. We'll pay whatever it takes. We need this talent. We are going to get it, whatever it takes. I think and I almost said, heard those words
0: exactly like that too
1: coming out <laughs> of Jamie Dimon's mouth. What hap- Why has this changed so quickly?
0: Well, one thing that's interesting is, that look at the big tech firms.
7: Them firing means that if you're at a big bank, you're not losing your guys to Meta or Facebook or Twitter as fast as you were before. And with all the crypto companies also now, many going bankrupt at rapid speed. Those are also not firms that are taking away from the big banks. So in a conversation, just like in the last couple of days with the former Goldman partner, they were telling me, they're like all their friends who left Goldman or left the big banks to go into crypto, they're calling the big banks back now and asking what's available to them.
0: So did you get the impression that, this is all normal, so we had abnormal times for a couple years, and now we're just going back to normal when it comes to talent, when it comes to pay, et cetera? Or do you also get the sense that these guys are preparing for something not great for 2023?
7: You hear such a range of outcomes. For David Solomon, he was like, yeah, soft landing is possible, but we're preparing for hard times. Brian Moynihan keeps something mild recession, a mild recession, but I'll tell you, I had hedge fund managers messaging me right after that interview saying, What is he what is he smoking? Like this has been a boom market for years. There's no way if you look at what the macro looks like today. And honestly, yeah, it's easier to feel that pain on the buy side when you have money at stake and you're losing billions of dollars. When you're a big bank, you've been cutting back on risk and you're capital preserving. So um, that's why you're seeing so many different pictures, I think. You you guys, uh, the the conversation we had with Seth Bernstein at Alliance Bernstein, he was even saying, he's like, yeah, things could get bad here and we'd like to keep jobs, but there's a possibility we're going to have to start downsizing should things get worse.
1: Yeah, at the same time, the other big story on the banks today has been that that J.P. Morgan no longer has any sell ratings on it. Betsy Graysk has has decided that that is no longer appropriate, the, the banks, and, and, and I hear what you're saying about kind of people pushing back on this whole concept, the, the banks are in a really good spot. US banks are are in such a great spot. Looking from from the outside in, you've got an economy that still looks good. The consumer still looks relatively good. They are well provisioned. Um, the, um, the, the downside in housing still looks relatively well managed uh, and, and looks manageable. The Fed is going to raise rates, but but not too high. That's really going to break things significantly. I, Chanali, these guys can talk about kind of things getting tough, but but to the to the kind of the point you were making earlier, U.S. banks look like they're in a great spot right now.
7: Relatively, right? If you're a European bank, things are super, super, super tough. And for a U.S. bank, Bank of America stock is down well over thirty, uh, well over twenty percent right now. It's down about twenty six percent. So even if you're heading into a tough environment, they have been selling off. Goldman's only down about two percent or so, and it's what they're telling you is that okay, you, you you know you heard him sit there and lean into the core 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 businesses while also telling you that we can manage expenses, our biggest cost here is headcount. So you know I think what the banks are trying to tell you is we still remain open for business but don't expect us to be taking on so much risk. And therefore, we're not going to we're not gonna lose as much money in a downturn. You even heard that from Discover, where a firm like Discover and some of these credit card companies, which are so heavily exposed to credit quality, the consumers. You know, um, in the commercial break, Roger Hockashile, the CEO of Discover, was telling me that uh, Gen Z and student credit cards are something that they were, you know, very, very heavily exposed to. And so when that's the case, some of those things, some, can I say kids? Some of those kids have never have never seen a downturn. We don't know as companies how those younger consumers are going to behave in a downturn, and even those folks are saying that they want to hire into this market because they're not going to be taking on much risk.
0: Shanali calls them kids. They're like I know, we're in
1: serious kids. trouble. Yeah, we we're, we're, right, we're
0: got our <laughs> big problems. Um, so, uh, what else is on tap uh, for the conference? Because I'm curious. It's like what are some of the unanswered questions that you just like a concrete answer to at this point?
7: like this recession drum beating we've gotten so much kind of rhetoric and tone from people but i don't feel like it, it, we have had so much conviction here from for people really saying yeah we're neat no no one's think about it we're going into a recession guys no one's said nobody has really said on the financial services side of the biggest banks that we're cutting 10 to 20 percent of our workforce no one said it they're saying they're calling on the margins so you think maybe. you think that's coming that's the big risk for next year mm-hmm. one big worry that everyone should have is if you think this is bad that hasn't happened yet so you know what does bad really look like is the question that has not really been answered for me and it's occurred to me that the reason that question's not answered is because you don't have any bank CEO in the world that's going to want to get up there and talk you into yep. a recession mm-hmm.
1: Th- the lesson recently has been though that financial markets and the economy can bounce back very, very quickly. And isn't there a danger that, that we see that once again? That the basically, yeah, the economy craters, financial markets crater, the banks lay off a load of people, then they can't hire them back, and the economy bounces back. I, how much more how much more determined to hang on to talent do you think this cycle, this industry is, versus previous cycles?
7: Less... less. Less so. And this is an interesting thing. Another kind of rival bank executive told me this the other day. They were like, listen, Chanel, we were losing people for, like, marketing jobs for $400,000 just months ago. Now, those opportunities are drying up. It's getting easier for them to pick and choose and hire. Mm -hmm. By the way, even at the younger end, you don't have the the kids. They're not griping as much as they used to, right? Because they don't have jobs that are so plentiful. If you go to any business school in the country, you, you don't have that same opportunity set for those kids walking out of school into these firms. So yeah. for the bankers, it's much easier right now to start hiring or at least hire very selectively uh, with this outlook being so uncertain. Plus, the market's going to get softer real soon.
0: So there's no hoarding labor on that front um, versus say other industries. Hey, Shanae, what was like the backroom talk on crypto?
7: So people are unexcited about uh, crypto in this room, I would say. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so but they're, they're not like, wow, I'm man, that. that was crazy, FTX. That's even not a thing. Right, exactly, exactly. I think that there's a little relief
7: that that's actually happening here, that there is such, um, you know, that there's such less uh, competition here. If you saw who was smiling at me, you would laugh too. <laughs> but they, uh, they, yeah, they, I think that there's a little excitement that the crypto market, at least, listen, you heard David Solomon say it too, blockchain. People, they're excited about blockchain because if you look at the financial markets more broadly, and frankly, for me, as somebody who loves covering finance i'm excited about this too less talk about the exuberance more talk about the fundamentals and the uh, excitement about capital markets and the infrastructure changing that's the conversation and it's a little less fun to have for a lot of people
1: (laughs) who's next what else you got
7: today we have peter weinberg the reason that's an interesting story is because we've been talking so much about succession on wall street I thought it was interesting to not hear Brian Moynihan hard and fast earlier say that he's definitely going to be on board for 10 more years. He talked a lot about what it means to get older, which I thought was an interesting thing to bring up in a conversation on television. Uh, Peter Weinberg, he waited till 65. He found his CEO successor. He's been telegraphing him for many, many years, as long as I've been on the job, which has been almost 10 years. And he's stepping down and passing on the torch. So this is going to be his last interview as CEO of Weinberg at a time where they're on both the FTX bankruptcy and advising Elon Musk on Twitter financing.
1: We're all getting older. Tsunali, great work today. (laughs) Great, great work. Uh, I've really enjoyed some of these conversations. I've certainly learned a great deal Mm -hmm. Uh, in terms of just how sort of swiftly things are changing. The, the the kind of the ripple effect out of the tech sector into the financial sector, I think, has been amazing to watch. So great work, Shinali. We've really appreciated uh, what what we've got today, Shinali Bassak. Um, what else we have got to talk about? I think we've got to talk about politics in Georgia. This is an important thing, isn't it, Alex?
0: Yeah, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about what.
1: Oh, we talk about oh yes, sorry. <laughs> yes. I
0: yes, wanted, you wanted to, to runoffs. I... That's interesting, but we know it's more interesting. Brent falling below eighty on the broader risk-off sentiment scenario. We're going to break Silly it me. down with an expert in the industry. This is Bloomberg.
4: This is the cable with Guy Johnson and Alex
5: Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening. You're listening to the cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele, New York Guy Johnson is over in London. Couple news items here Brent crude falling below 80. Yes, we have a broader risk off sentiment. Also, yesterday we had the Russian oil price cap kicking in, and then reports out that Russia is considering setting a floor price. Uh, price floor, rather, for its international oil sales in response to that cap. I'm not really sure what that means. I think it means you can't sell oil under a certain amount. But anyway, this just shows the volatility in the commodity market and how hard it's been in 2022 to balance the energy transition with energy security. So let's get a deeper take on this. I'm very pleased to welcome Bobby Tudor. He is CEO of Artemis Energy Partners. He also is the founder and a former CEO of Tudor, Pickering & Holt. It is an investment bank for for energy. Um, and he was truly one of the leaders in this space and now is very much focused on the energy transition. Bobby, thanks for being here in studio, no less.
6: My pleasure, Alex. Happy to be here.
0: So that's the scene, as we said, end 2022, right? We have a war, energy transition versus energy security, oil at 80. How do you look at this year and then look ahead to next year?
6: Well, this was the year this, the pendulum Swung back and it's swung back to the middle in my view in a very healthy way for for what it's worth because it has reminded policymakers and average citizens and the media, sort of everyone outside of the incumbent energy world who already knew this, but it's reminded everyone that the challenge is a dual challenge. It's not just about dramatically lowering carbon emissions. It's also about providing reliable, affordable, and secure, energy today. And we have to do both of those things, and we have to do them simultaneously. It's Mm -hmm. a a massive challenge, uh, and I think the world better understands the nature of that today than it did before Russia invaded Ukraine.
0: What is the biggest challenge to it? I know that's a broad question, but I mean, getting funding for it? Mm -hmm. Is it appreciating oil and gas companies that need to stick around longer than maybe we thought? Is it geopolitics? What is the biggest challenge as you then see it?
6: It's primarily money. Yeah. So the IEA says we need to be spending three and a half to four trillion dollars a year globally to meet the Paris goals. We're currently spending about a trillion, so we're two and a half to three trillion short per year between now and 2050. But I
0: thought that everyone was on board with this. Wouldn't everyone just be like fundraising the hell out of this, and, and there'd be tons of money pouring in? Like, why isn't that happening?
6: Well, there are pockets of it where that is true, but there are other pockets uh, where it's actually very, very hard to raise money. So if you're doing a a wind power project in the Midwest, and you have a 15-year power purchase agreement with an investment-grade utility or, or an industrial, there is all the money in the world to fund that that you want. And you can fund it at low single-digit returns. If, however, you're trying to do true breakthrough technology, whether it's you know nuclear fusion or a new hydrogen electrolyzer or something that is that is truly breakthrough stuff, there's not an unlimited amount of risk capital for that because the risk associated is with it is is very, very large. And uh, the, the challenges of energy systems are, are such that you, you have these scalability issues that make any true innovation and breakthrough very difficult. So um, money's in, money's an issue, and it's going to have to come from everywhere. It's going to have to come from governments. It's going to have to come from the private markets. And ultimately, it's going to have to come from consumers. And that's where the rub is, hmm. really, because people are all for it until they have to pay more for it.
1: Bobby, it's Guy in London. Hello, I'd Guy. Like to get your take, I'd like to get your take on what is happening here in Europe. I want to talk about particularly about countries like Germany. Germany has built its industrial base on, on the basis of cheap Russian gas that no longer exists. It now needs to think about how it's going to sustain that industrial base in an era of higher energy prices. Do you think that's possible?
6: Yes, I think it's possible, but I think they're going to have to completely rethink their energy agenda. Um, you know policy, which has been you know driving, uh, driving their energy system over the course of the past five to ten years. I think natural gas is, by definition, still going to have to play a really important point in the German industrial world. That natural gas is just going to have to come from other places instead of coming from. But it's going um, to be much more
1: expensive. It will a- be.
6: A- it will be more expensive. But you can land. You can land Gulf Coast LNG. Uh, in places in Europe where, where Germany can get their hands on, on that gas uh, that is still economic to their industrial system. So yes, it will not be as cheap as Russian gas, but it will be quite competitive. How, how, does, how does Europe Europe needs to move really
1: quickly right now, yet we have a, a real problem building wind turbines. Um, a, they become much more expensive, and B, there is, there is ongoing issues surrounding permitting and I'm and I'm it really frustrates me that we are in a situation where this stuff is not moving more quickly. What do you think what in your mind, what do you think the timeline should be for the energy transition? How quickly could this be done?
6: Well, it could be done more quickly than than we're currently doing it. and a lot of that you've you've touched on it, uh, guy, but a lot of it has to do with permitting. And even here in the US, permitting is a big big issue. you know we we have this fantastic new IRA investment reduction act with uh, you know 400 billion dollars oriented towards the energy complex but there wasn't a word in there ultimately about permitting right and with with no permits there's no projects the same is true in europe and and if anything nimbyism is worse in europe than it is in in many parts of many parts of the us so permitting reform is really really mm-hmm. uh, critical if we're going to get moving on a pace that that we need to be moving on and capital capital is another uh, but the capital will follow, will follow innovation, and I'm actually more confident uh, around that because there's really fantastic work being done across issues such as the hydrogen economy, or CCUS, mm-hmm. or, or all, all pieces that ultimately need innovation to keep driving the cost down to make it truly cost competitive.
0: Well, and before I let you go to that point, oil companies are the people doing that. Like they're the ones that can put lots of money into CCUS and all that kind of stuff, carbon capture and storage. Uh, are they?
6: Well, um, in the, in the U.S., they are now, and the reason they are now is because those projects have have suddenly become economic hmm. uh, with the subsidies associated with the with the IRA. Similarly, in in uh, in Europe, they're they're doing it more on a kind of one-off basis because obviously governance in Europe is is quite different. But I think you are going to see a pickup in those projects now. Importantly, CCUS, for example. Uh, is not a technology you can use everywhere because a lot of it has to do with the geology of the area. So we mm-hmm. happen to be very mm-hmm. fortunate in Texas. We have great geology for it, but that's not true. And, and so, for example, in Japan, it's not an alternative. They simply don't have it. So uh, it varies by region. I think every region is going to have to yeah. have uh, tailor-made solutions, but there is good momentum around it.
0: It's not a one-size-fits-all situation. Hey, Bobby, it was really good to catch up with you in person. Thank you so much, uh, Bobby Tudor, joining us there. That's it for the show. We'll see you tomorrow. This is Bloomberg.